video games. Out there, me. The people who make them. The stories behind it all. You're listening to Random Access Memories. By Ron's Pies. Enjoy the show. If you were to ask someone off the street to name a video game character, they'd probably hesitate in confusion for a second after being confronted by a stranger with such a weird question. But then, they'd probably say Mario. Mario is the Mickey Mouse of the gaming world, an instantly recognizable character that has been a household name around the world for nearly 40 years. The iconic overalls, red cap, and distinctive mustache are all key characteristics of inarguably the most recognizable character in video games. Second, maybe only to Pikachu. Nintendo in general is probably the most recognizable brand in gaming, to the point where the older generation tends to refer to just about every single gaming console as the Nintendo. Mario, The Legend of Zelda, Donkey Kong, just about every single person with even passing knowledge of video games knows these names. But what they may not know is that not only were all three created almost single-handedly by one person, but that one person may have saved the entire video game industry in the 1980s. That one person is regarded as a legend among the video game community. Everyone knows his name. I don't even have to say his name and you probably know who I'm talking about. But what the many who do know who he is may not know the man himself, his full story. They know his work, they know his name, but they don't know how he became the legend we know as Shigeru Miyamoto. Welcome to Random Access Memories, a gaming podcast dedicated to the stories behind video games. This podcast is an in-depth look at a variety of the different franchises, developers, and studios around the world that form the greatest entertainment medium in the world. History, conversations, fun facts about franchises you thought you knew everything about, this is Random Access Memories. Random Access Memories is a podcast produced by Ron's Pies, a YouTube channel dedicated to in-depth looks at video games. If you like the podcast, please follow the show on your podcast podcast distribution platform of choice, leave a positive review, and subscribe to the channel. With that, please enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 5 of Random Access Memories, and the first non-Halo episode, believe it or not, this is not a Halo podcast, and the first of many non-Halo episodes begins today. But before we get into the bulk of this episode, I'm your host, Wade Ronspies, and I'm joined once again by my friend, Keegan Ehlers. Hello. <laughs> you stuck around after Halo. I did, surprisingly. <laughs> so as we're talking about Nintendo, your other favorite My thing other love. love, yeah. Do you like Nintendo as much or more than Halo? Like Nintendo as a whole? As a whole, yeah. I'd say, honestly, like I like Nintendo more than I like halo because halo's your bread and butter halo's but my bread like, and butter but the legend of zelda yeah is like i know how much you like zelda you literally have it tattooed on your body yeah exactly like twilight princess is my is my number two game and halo and i think my first halo game would be halo 3 and that's like my, my top five which so so zelda beats halo basically on average you'd say yes for me yeah that's that's fair. For me, my relationship with Nintendo was pretty much um, one of the first consoles I ever played was the NES. Same. Or not. 
We had a PS1 and an NES in my house growing up, and so Nintendo has a very special place in my heart. Oh yeah, my first console was a 64 played way too much i did play the 64 at a friend's house i i do have a relationship with that too mario kart 64 oh might be my favorite 64 game so good mine was donkey kong 64 Mm, i remember playing that for the first time be like look at the water one of the most hated donkey kong games well just like 3d platform i loved it it was so great and the music Oh, just loved it. I mean, for when I was a kid, it was just like, look how pretty this is. And just like trash nowadays. God, the pixels. But this, the reason I wanted to do a biography on Shigeru Miyamoto is just to celebrate the man who's created all of these games that we love, all at least all of these names that we love. Like he hasn't been directly involved in a ton of projects in recent years, but he still set the stage for what would become some of the most influential gaming franchises in history. Miyamoto. He needs no introduction. I think everyone who plays or is in the know about games knows who Miyamoto is, but if for some reason you don't know who this guy is, stick around, and it'll probably blow your mind just how talented and influential this guy is, even if you don't play video games. With that, Sonobe is a small town located about a 30-minute train ride to the northwest of the old imperial capital of Japan. Kyoto. Like many rural towns in Japan, Sonobi has a handful of small parks, Buddhist temples, Shinto shrines, convenience stores. A river runs through the town, and thick forests of bamboo and trees surround the town on all sides, as does the occasional cave. And currently, Sonobi is just one piece of the larger city of Nantan, which is a combination of a bunch of small towns to the northwest of Kyoto, including Sonobe. So it's easier to, if you want to know where Miyamoto lives, look up Nantan, not Sonobe, because Sonobe is just part of that. It's here where Shigeru Miyamoto was born on November 16th, 1952, and it's here that Shigeru Miyamoto would play and explore as a child. His family at the time was described as modest by Miyamoto. They had neither a car nor a television. In his youth, Miyamoto's family would occasionally take the train ride to Kyoto to see a movie, and, more often than not, that movie would be one produced by Disney. Considering he was born in the 50s, it's safe to assume he grew up on movies like Peter Pan, Lady and the Tramp, Sleeping Beauty, and 101 Dalmatians, each one influencing him in ways that no one could have imagined. Aside from the occasional film viewing, Miyamoto also practiced all sorts of different activities in his childhood, from baseball to painting to puppet shows, but one activity of his that would influence his life going forward more than almost anything was his habit of exploring the wilderness surrounding his hometown. Specifically, there was one cave in particular that greatly piqued young Miyamoto's interest, but his fear seemed to always outweigh his curiosity, until one day when he finally decided to venture deep into the cave, lantern in hand. And mind you, this was the 1950s, flashlights were very uncommon for people who didn't work with them. He carried a gas-powered lantern with him. If it went out, you were pretty much screwed. I mean, you'd be screwed if your flashlight died, but even more so if it's a gas-lit lantern, you can't shake that back to life. Yeah, dude, even being a kid, you'd be terrified. Oh, yeah, for sure. And, like, I say flashlights. The flashlights then were these giant, bulky things with those big uh, light bulbs. You know, they were basically just high-powered light bulbs that were pointed in a direction. Um, So they weren't exactly reliable. When Miyamoto entered middle school, his family finally purchased a home TV set, on which Miyamoto was exposed to the world of Japanese animation, or as we call it today, anime. It was during this time that he also started to get into Japanese comics, or 
manga. In fact, when he started high school, he even joined a manga club. During his teenage years, he realized what he wanted to do. He wanted to become an artist. Inspired by the likes of Walt Disney and the mangaka of his era, he sought to master the art of illustration and character design. It's also during this time that Miyamoto's family relocated to the historic city of Kyoto, home of the Japanese Imperial Palace, countless castles, bustling markets, back alleys, and a nearly limitless amount of universities dedicated to all kinds of professions. However, this is not where Miyamoto would attend college. For that, he would move to the coastal city of Kanazawa and attend the Kanazawa College of Industrial Art and Design. Except, he wasn't exactly a great student. In fact, instead of going to class, he'd often practice the banjo and go play shows with some fellow classmates in venues and clubs all over the city. I honestly didn't know that, but that's actually pretty freaking cool that he played the banjo. <laughs> yeah, well, I think he's, he's talked about it late. Like, he still, I think, talks about it occasionally, how he knows how to play the banjo. I think I've seen that pop up as a fun fact. Like, did you know he knows how to play the banjo? I mean, that's pretty cool. Like, <laughs> I love just the idea of him, this super influential guy nowadays, but back in college, he was just ditching class so he could go play the banjo in clubs. Yeah, well, and you got to think that's the early 70s, too. Yeah. <laughs> It would have, yeah, it would have been like the... 70s. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's funny. Foreign influence didn't just come in the form of Disney movies. Musically, he was deeply moved by the works of the Beatles. After five years at college, Shigeru Miyamoto graduated with a bachelor's degree in 1975. So it's about five years in school. So if, if you spend a little extra time getting that bachelor's degree, don't feel bad. Miyamoto did it too. So did we. Yeah, I, I, I went to college for five years. I'm I going to college off. for like seven <laughs> everyone works at their own pace exactly and that's okay and not everyone knows what they're doing when they go to college either oh god i didn't yeah i didn't know for my first i wanted to i wanted to go into film and i'm like this is difficult and so i just went into broad i just went into broadcasting instead yep i've, I've had a uh, multitude of majors and i've settled on one that i that i think i can do so we'll see mm. we'll see if i stick with it at this point in time nintendo was a toy company Video games were still a blossoming industry. Pong was about it. The Magnavox Odyssey was the only gaming console on the market, aside from a variety of home Pong machines. And even then, the Odyssey was essentially a Pong machine. It was so rudimentary, in fact, the different games for the Odyssey were just plastic overlays you put over your TV screen. I don't know if you've seen videos of the Odyssey, where it's like, oh, we're playing golf, and you just have this plastic printout that looks like a golf course and you just put it over your tv and then you just pretend like you're playing golf dude what a time to be alive yeah that was like you think you have to use your imagination like if if you thought we had to use our imagination as kids to enjoy games more back then that was literally all you had oh god i thank god we were not alive then <laughs> thank god we were in the void yep founded in 1889 nintendo began life as what was essentially a legal loophole in 1633, yeah, we're going way back, foreign trading cards were banned from Japan. Eventually, in the late 18th century, all playing cards were banned as they were seen as gambling tools. I didn't really get a confirmed yes or no on if gambling itself was banned, but I, I'm assuming so if they were banning things related to gambling. It's in this time when a game called Hanafuda originated, a card game 
using cards with elaborate illustrations on them. And because the illustrations on the cards were so ornate and complex, they weren't considered playing cards. The game itself was derivative of card games of the past, but with a convenient loophole that allowed people to play the game with relative openness out in the public. After the Meiji Restoration in the late 19th century, restrictions on playing cards were beginning to lift. And in this period, a man named Fusajiro Yamauchi began a company called Nintendo Kopai to manufacture Hanafuda cards. And since the company's founding in Kyoto in 1889, the same year North and South Dakota became states, the year the Eiffel Tower was finished, and the year Adolf Hitler was born, Nintendo has evolved and adapted to meet the times. Due to the financial strain World War II placed on Japan, Nintendo branched out to all kinds of different business ventures like instant rice, taxi services, and, uh, love hotels. If you want to know what those are, just Google it. Nice. Because I'm not saying... Nice. In the 60s and 70s, Nintendo started morphing into the company we know today by beginning production on electronics, specifically kids' toys. In fact, in the late 50s, Nintendo actually started producing Hanafuda cards aimed at kids with Disney characters on them. And not kids with Disney characters on them. The cards had Disney characters on them. And considering young Shigeru Miyamoto's fascination with Disney, it's entirely possible that those cards were Miyamoto's first introduction to Nintendo as a company. I have a nice mental picture of Nintendo. I don't know if these Hanafuda cards came in packs or how expensive they were, but considering like these were cards aimed at kids with Disney illustrations, maybe when they were just wandering around in Kyoto one day, it's like, ooh, Disney stuff, buy that, parents. And, you know on the pack it says Nintendo and th that'd be like a, if you're making a movie that you do like a super close up close up with like not ominous music but like music that kind of hypes you up like oh future the future <laughs> despite Nintendo's attempts at branching out to all kinds of different services and industries the company was failing but due to their success with children that's the market they decided to go after nintendo produced a variety of different board games like chess and shogi which is essentially japanese chess but their breakthrough moment was after a designer named gunpei yokoi designed the nintendo beam gun one of the first electronic toys ever produced in japan and from what i gathered from looking this up the beam gun the beam gun was basically a very primitive version of the uh, light gun that we would later see in games like Duck Hunt, except like you would shoot at a physical thing and it would react to it, hmm. which is pretty crazy. Like even today, that would be impressive. Just like, whoa, shoot, shoot a thing and it's and it it did something. Up. Yeah. Gunpei Yokoi was Nintendo's guy. He also designed a variety of other toys for Nintendo and essentially put them on the map as a major company and would eventually go on to design products like the Game & Watch and the Game Boy. Their stock was on the way up, and their toys were selling in the millions. After the success of the Nintendo Beam Gun, Nintendo decided to dip their toes in the world of interactive entertainment, video games. In 1973 and 1974, Nintendo developed the Laser Clay Shooting System and Wild Gunman Arcade Machines, both of which were exported to the United States and Europe. Wild Gunman was actually released had a version on the NES that was a light gun game, but from what I researched, that um, the arcade version was straight up like an FMV game, um, where it was actually like a video of a cowboy they had to draw and fire on, and it was basically the the game from One Two Switch. I don't know if you've seen that yeah. game, Keegan, where it's just like ready, aim, fire, and you have to beat the other player in a duel. It was basically that, but an arcade game. Hmm, that's pretty cool. So, in the seventies. 
So wow, yeah. use your hands. That's a baby's toy. Shout out to Back to the Future, because <laughs> I believe uh, a young Elijah Wood. Yes, in, it was either Back to the Future one or two. They're playing Wild Gunmen on an arcade machine, but the the more NES version, I believe, not the '70s version. Nintendo wasn't just breaking into video games; they were pretty much becoming a video game company. Nintendo's president at the time, Hiroshi Yamauchi, even acquired the rights to distribute the Magnavox Odyssey in Japan. The company started developing microprocessors in collaboration with Mitsubishi. Yes, that Mitsubishi. And after hiring a young man named Shigeru Miyamoto in 1977, Nintendo split into two facilities, both of which were focused on creating consumer electronics. Shigeru Miyamoto was hired by Nintendo in 1977 after his father arranged an interview with Hiroshi Yamauchi, the president of Nintendo, and great-grandson of the company's founder. And originally I felt like, oh, it must be nice to, you know, your dad literally knows the, the, knows the guy who knows the president of Nintendo. It wasn't that easy. Yamauchi had an aura. This was a seasoned vet of business and industry, the patriarch of the Yamauchi family. In a black suit and with his iconic aviator glasses, he almost looked more like a Yakuza boss than the head of an entertainment company. This is the kind of guy that demanded he be the only member of his family working at Nintendo at the time he took over, much to the chagrin of his cousin, who was promptly fired when their grandfather passed away in 1949. Hey, I'm president now. You're fired. Dang. And it was his older cousin. I don't know if you know this about Japan, but Japan is very much based on an age hierarchy. Mm -hmm. So it's basically like, if someone is older than you, you do what they say, no matter what. It doesn't matter if you're more experienced technically. If they're older than you, you do what they say. So for this guy to come in and fire his elder cousin, that was a big power move. But not only that, Yamauchi was also the kind of guy to quell a strike early on in his career by cleaning house and firing a large portion of some of Nintendo's most dedicated staff at the time. Yamauchi's been described as ruthless and intimidating. Nintendo's products lived and died by Yamauchi's word. He always had the final say on anything Nintendo would sell. Yamauchi was a shrewd businessman, but as we'll see, he also had an eye for raw talent and progressive industries. Yamauchi passed away in 2013, so he actually he 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 became president in 1949, and he didn't he didn't pass away until 2013. So dude was around for a long time, and I believe he wouldn't be replaced until um. Iwata came along. Yeah, I was gonna say Iwata was last per was president. Well, Iwata, Iwata was just... the first person who wasn't a part of the Yamauchi family to become president. Yamauchi was impressed with the catalog of toys that Miyamoto had created in his time during and after college, which included a three-person seesaw and a fancy clock. And Yamauchi hired the then 25-year-old as an apprentice at Nintendo. The thing is that, despite Nintendo's relatively major success in the years leading up to Miyamoto's hiring, they were still a pretty small company. Miyamoto was actually the very first full-time artist that Nintendo hired, but Miyamoto didn't hesitate to take the position. After all, they'd let him be what he had always wanted to be, an artist. Not only that, but he was also enticed by the freedom that involved working at a place that essentially gave him the freedom to do what he wanted and follow any idea he could have possibly had. Miyamoto's first major task was to create original artwork for a game called Sheriff, the first traditional coin-operated arcade game developed by Nintendo in 1979. In Sheriff, the player has to defend the town from an incoming gang of bandits and save a damsel in distress. It was a pretty basic twin-stick shooter, 
Um, also, the sheriff from the game shows up as an assist trophy in Super Smash Bros. Ultimate. So I don't know if you've encountered the sheriff. Is he the one that comes out and shoots shots just randomly? Yeah, he's at you? like yellow and two D yep. and very yeah blocky. Yep that that was the first game Miyamoto ever worked on. That's funny, and since it's, it's represented in Smash Bros. In 1980, Miyamoto would get his first shot at developing a game firsthand with Radar Scope, a game very very similar to Space Invaders. This was going to be the game that really broke Nintendo through to the international market, at least. That's what Nintendo hoped. Radarscope performed decently in bars and arcades across Japan, but it failed to make even a small dent in America. This left Nintendo with a ton of unused arcade cabinets that no one ever bought, and they were on the brink of financial collapse. Their first attempt at breaking through to America with video games was an immense failure, but they didn't want to throw in the towel. They still had a ton of arcade cabinets that could be converted to play another, hopefully, more popular game. I want to elaborate on the idea of like converting arcade cabinets. The idea is that you have all of these unsold arcade cabinets lying around. I think they had like literally thousands of radar scope cabinets that they never sold to Americans. And so the idea was just we'll make a new game and then reprogram those cabinets to play the new game and then sell those, hopefully. It would save a ton of money, and it, yeah, it makes sense. When you, why would they just destroy those or hope for the best and sell? Yeah. Hiroshi Yamauchi tasked Shigeru Miyamoto, a still relatively green employee at Nintendo, with converting these cabinets to a different game. But why a Miyamoto? Why an artist and not an engineer? Well, according to him, quote, no one else was available. Those who were making the video games were the programmers and engineers, not the character designers and other artists, Miyamoto said. And it's not like Miyamoto would make the game alone, of course. He also had Gunpei Yokoi as a supervisor on the project. And Miyamoto didn't exactly have to program the whole thing on his own either. He was essentially in charge of conceptualizing the game and relaying his ideas to their four-man team of programmers, thus creating the concept of a game director or game designer. In those days, Miyamoto said, I sometimes joked that I was one of the five greatest game designers in the world, simply because there were no other game designers in the world. I love that quote. <laughs> That's kind of funny. He's a very humble man, Miyamoto is. Like, if you read his interviews, he's very self-deprecating. It's like, ah, I'm not that big of a deal. It's like, I mean, kind of a big deal. But to him, he was just doing his job, you know? Yeah. Yokoi and Miyamoto had $100,000 to bring Nintendo back from the brink and establish themselves in North America, and it all relied on Miyamoto's ideas. Around that time, Nintendo was also looking to create a video game adaptation of the famed comic strip and cartoon, Popeye. But after their attempts to gain the rights to Popeye failed, Miyamoto decided to create original characters using the characters of Popeye as inspiration. Not just Popeye, of course. Beauty and the Beast, the original fairy tale, not the Disney movie because that didn't come till way later. And King Kong. This would be one of the first times a game's story and characters would be an integral part of the game itself, implementing all of those years of Disney influence and Japanese animation into a game, thus beginning a unique artistic direction, not just for Miyamoto, but for Nintendo itself. Miyamoto's ignorance when it came to programming and computer engineering might have also been what gave him the ambition to suggest some of the core ideas behind the upcoming game. Characters of different shapes and sizes, multiple stages, sloped platforms, tiny cutscenes. Very rudimentary stuff by today's standards, obviously, but this was at the cutting edge of video game technology. In 1979, Nintendo established Nintendo of America in New York City. In 1981, Nintendo sent them a game for testing, the fruits of Miyamoto and his small team's labor. 
Some of the higher-ups at Nintendo's American subsidiary were actually a bit disappointed with what they played. I actually read, even read some places that they straight-up hated it. They were hoping for a puzzle game or a shooter, as was standard in the American gaming market at the time. But instead, they got a 2D platformer. Regardless, Nintendo of America were the ones who'd get to name the characters. Pauline was named after the wife of Nintendo of America's warehouse manager. Jumpman, who would later become Mario after their warehouse landlord, Mario Sigali. And for the main villain and the game's namesake, that one was a Miyamoto special. Donkey Kong, a giant gorilla, and the one who Miyamoto felt was the strongest character, thus the one worthy of the game's title. Now, there are a ton of theories and interpretations surrounding where the donkey in Donkey Kong comes from. Maybe Miyamoto wanted DK to be called Monkey Kong, but it got lost in translation. Maybe he looked up stubborn in a Japanese-English dictionary, but the man himself just says he wanted a name that would convey the idea of a, quote, stupid ape. Apparently, Nintendo of America laughed at the name, but to Miyamoto, that only solidified the idea, and they went with the name. America thought it was weird, but they stuck with it at the insistence of HQ in Kyoto. As for Kong, it was actually a common slang word for monkeys or gorillas in Japanese, which was probably the result of King Kong's influence in the 1930s. So basically, donkey, just stupid monkey, and Kong is just what the Japanese use to describe monkeys. So stupid ape. Basically, like, I don't think there was a really a lot of thought that went into it, I think. Yeah, so I just, because those were things that the interpretations or whatever were, were legit things that I had read of just like, it could be this, it could be this, but then I straight up found an interview where it's like, no, it's just this, you idiots. I don't know, it was symbolic. Uh, in July 1981, Donkey Kong was released onto arcades around the world after a few reluctant bars in Seattle picked it up, and was met with near-immediate commercial and critical success, especially in North America. After one year, Nintendo was selling tens of thousands of cabinets and made almost $200 million. After another year, 100 million more on top of that. Nintendo's success also allowed them to port Donkey Kong to all kinds of home platforms in the years following its release. Atari, ColecoVision, and Television, as well as give Miyamoto the opportunity to helm future games as a director and designer. In a near instant, Miyamoto became one of the biggest names within Nintendo. Dude, that'd be wild. Like, <laughs> being like a like like a dude, like us, just running a yeah. company. Like, someone's like, hey, everyone's busy, can you do this? And you're like, Sure, why not? Like, I'll just do my job. And then, boom, it's like, hey, you just made you something brought huge. your company back from the brink, yeah. and now you're regarded as like a god within the company. And then now you're going to become the god of the entire industry, so uh, congrats. Yeah, yeah, like, so much of this story is just like, oh, just wait, man. Just wait. Just wait till, you know, just give him a few more years. It's wild. But yeah, it, it's it's so crazy how fast his career moved forward. I mean, it, I mean, it still took years before he got to that point because he was hired in '77. It wasn't until I mean, it was four years, but still four years working full time and already a director, pretty much. Well, yeah, that's and he was just an of, artist. That's especially unheard of, like today in today's gaming companies. Oh so yeah, it takes. They were very impressed with, especially with such a hard ass as Yamauchi at the head of the company. It's like, that's like, they were very impressed with Miyamoto, obviously. Be pretty neat. Pretty much getting the same respect as even some of the most like old, oldest staff at Nintendo. Yeah. So it's pretty crazy. I mean, like Hideo Kojima had a pretty similar uh, traject career trajectory as well, where he was just hired as a programmer 
and he made a couple games, and then he's like, I want to do this, and I'm like, okay, what could it be? And it's Metal Gear. It's like, oh, nice. You want to make more of these and be a god? So, I don't know, like, maybe that's just a Japanese thing, where they, they're impressed with your work, and you can just helm your own projects from then on. All right, wait. Let's do it. We're, we're packing our bags, and we're going to go do it. <laughs> what, what? Oh, get moved to Japan? Yep, we're going to move to Japan, become huge success stories, and that's it. Oh, uh, yeah. They'll be very impressed with my deeply thought out concepts and ideas. Yeah. On a real note, like, I wouldn't want to live in Japan, but God, I would love to visit at least, like, once a year. One day. When we're 50. Anyway, 1982 saw the release of Donkey Kong Jr., a sequel to Donkey Kong with Mario as the main antagonist, and the first game with Mario as the Italian carpenter's name. And I don't know what you're thinking. He's a plumber, right? Not a carpenter? Well, not in 1982. In DK Jr., the player controls Jr., rescuing the titular Donkey Kong from the last game from the evil clutches of Mario. Then, I mean, there's not a, really a lot to say on that. It's just, hey, and Miyamoto made a new game, and it's it's good, but people aren't really talking about DK Jr. today. I don't know, it's, it's on the NES Classic, or it's on the NES... Uh, Virtual console on the Switch. That's worth trying out. Then, in 1983, two games were released that were both helmed by Miyamoto. Donkey Kong 3 and Mario Brothers. Now, if you know your gaming history, then you know something big happened in the world of video games in 1983. Something known as the video game crash of 1983. Now, this is something that didn't directly affect Japan in a major way, but it was something that had a dramatic effect on anyone in the process of breaking into the North American market. Now, the video game crash of 1983 is something big and important enough to be worthy of its entire podcast episode or entire series, so I don't want to get into the nitty-gritty details about the whole bloody affair, but here's what you need to know in the context of its relationship to Nintendo. Essentially, the video game market was being absolutely swamped with tons of games. Every major company wanted their piece of this pie, a pie that was still being baked, mind you, so everyone was churning out games on a shoestring budget, sometimes within weeks. They were seen as toys, as things you could whip together for cheap and make a ton of money on. And this was coming off another crash later in the 70s after a huge string of Pong consoles, aka consoles that only played Pong, flooded the market. But the crash of 1983 was something else entirely, with a ton of different contributing factors. Not only were a ton of games being made, there were a ton of bad games being made. One example being the infamously bad E.T. game made for the Atari 2600, which was made by one guy who was given one month to make it. Investors were overprojecting, and game sales were falling after the endless barrage of bad games and increasing inflation in the economy were causing people to shy away from buying games. So this was the new landscape Nintendo was faced with. Despite the crash, Nintendo still did okay in the American mar arcade market, with Miyamoto-led Mario Bros. still making millions of dollars in arcade sales and Atari 2600 car cartridge sales. But, whoa, 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 hold up. Mario Bros.? This seems like a big thing I'm glossing over, so let's dial it back just a tad. In the grand scheme of things, Mario Bros. isn't exactly the most important game in Miyamoto's catalog, but it is the one that set the stage and established a character and world that would become synonymous with gaming. The character that would essentially become the Mickey Mouse of video games, as I described at the top of the show. The thing is, you may know Mario, but you may not know Mario Bros. This is the game that introduced Mario as a plumber rather than a carpenter, as well as his green-themed brother, Luigi. The game takes place in the New York City sewer system, and it is actually New York City, it's not like Mushroom Kingdom. They straight up said they based it off of the, Brooklyn, the I believe Brooklyn specifically, the sewer system there. 
um, like Miyamoto specifically referenced in NYC, um, as two players work together to dispatch a variety of different turtles and crabs. Mario Bros. isn't super noteworthy for the game itself, but this is where you see Miyamoto slowly cultivating Mario into both an iconic mascot and the key to his innovation in design. The pipes seemed like natural ways to spawn enemies and allow for movement through the level. The design heavily revolved around movement and jumping. Mario Bros. was very much a product of its 80s arcade roots, but you can see the seeds of something that would grow and blossom into something made specifically for a home console. Um, have you played, or do you do you know about just Mario Bros? Not Super Mario Bros. Just yeah. Mario Bros. I remember playing I mean, people, it. People know about it, but they it's, it's kind of just a pretty thing. boring game to be honest. Yeah, that's why I didn't really spend a lot of like it seems it's it's important, but it's not. It's just basic. It's a very basic basic game. Yeah, like it's the first standalone Mario game, but it's not the one people write home about. Nor is it really a game worth playing today sadly but because it was made for arcades and you can kind of see that when you play it yeah in july of 1983 the day after mario bros hit japanese arcades in fact nintendo released the famicom in japan their very first home computer entertainment system the idea behind the famicom was to allow for the usage of complex and exciting new games in the home but without the intimidation factor or hefty price of a personal computer with a keyboard this was something you'd be able to simply plug into your TV and play with the whole family. After all, Famicom literally means family computer, just condensed. And it, it, Keegan studying Japanese, he'll discover soon that that is very common in Japanese to so just take two English words, smash them together into a shorter word, and that's just the word in Japanese. Yep. When the Famicom launched in Japan in 1983, it only came with three games, Donkey Kong, Donkey Kong Jr., and Popeye. So Nintendo did end up getting their hands on the license, and yes, Miyamoto did help make it as a designer. All three launch games for the Famicom were helmed in some way by Shigeru Miyamoto just six years after he was hired in 1977. Just imagine the PS5 coming out and literally every single game out for it was led by one person. Dude, that'd be nuts. <laughs> so that's Miyamoto, man. That is Miyamoto. But it also shows like he wasn't super hands-on. He was just kind of like pop into the room. I have an idea. Do this. And all of a sudden he gets credits as the director. But still like... He was the guy with the ideas, and like, it's not to, I don't want to undermine his role. He was still a very crucial part in forming those games' identities and whatnot, but still, it's not like he was in the trenches day in and day out coding with everyone else. No, like, because he was bouncing between so many different projects at the time. After six years, Miyamoto was now the man at Nintendo, just as Gunpei Yokoi was before Miyamoto was hired. And for the record, Yokoi was often a co-designer on every single one of Miyamoto's games. But when it came to video games themselves, Miyamoto was your guy. The Famicom might seem pretty bare bones, but gaming culture was different in Japan. Arcades have almost always been king, even today. The idea for a lot of consoles in the early years of gaming was simply to allow people to not have to go to the arcade in order to play a game. This was a convenience thing. That's why it's so like, eh, you just get three games, because like, these are games you can get at the arcade, but now you don't have to go there anymore. You don't have to go there just to play this game now. And Nintendo had big, long-term plans for the Famicom. Specifically, President Yamauchi did, exemplified in his decision to establish a whole new division 
with the Nintendo dedicated to making great games for their new console, helmed by none other than Shigeru Miyamoto himself. Nintendo R&D 4, or as we would later come to know it, Nintendo EAD. And if you know your Nintendo, then you know Nintendo EAD is a very, very, very big deal. Um, do you know the name Nintendo EAD? I honestly don't. Their Japanese studios are a little close to the vest with like the actual names of the studios, because like Capcom, it's literally Capcom Studio One, Capcom Studio Two, you know. So they do it a little differently in Japan. But Nintendo EAD was basically the main studio at Nintendo because it was the one helmed by Miyamoto, and so Nintendo EAD, and at the time R and D four, they made just about every single mainline Mario and Zelda game until the year 2015. Like literally everything from Super Mario Bros. up to Super Mario Maker and everything from The Legend of Zelda to Skyward Sword. That was all Nintendo EAD. So that's, we're establishing that now. It was after they launched the Famicom too. So it's like, you guys kind of did could have planned for that a little better, but okay. Um, But <clears throat> the reason EAD... Uh, no longer exists is because it it's not defunct. It just merged with another division. So it just lost the name and became bigger. Um, from 1983 onward, Miyamoto would be a key part of nearly every single internally developed Nintendo game, even if he wasn't the lead designer or director. His first Famicom game as leader of R&D4 was Devil World, a puzzle maze game made exclusively for the Famicom. No arcade release whatsoever. And puzzle maze game is just my fancy way of saying Pac-Man clone, but for what it's worth, it's a pretty well-regarded game and one worth mentioning. But if you're a Nintendo fan and you're thinking, wait a second, I've never heard of Devil World. That's because it never came out in America due to its religious theming. In Japan, it's not exactly crazy to have biblical symbolism in your games. It's still pretty much considered source material akin to Greek or Norse mythology, but in the West, there's no doubt that there would have been some controversy. But it did end up coming out in Europe in 1987, though. America never saw it, even when it came to virtual console. So when it came to virtual console, it was Japan and Europe. So obviously they have like a translated version that they could have put, gave Americans, but they just never did. Because even, I guess, in 2012 or whenever that came to virtual console, they still didn't think Americans could handle it. Yeah, I mean... I don't blame them, at least at first. <laughs> I mean, like, you're also coming right off the... You're coming right off the satanic panic of the 70s. So, I could see why Nintendo was probably like, maybe not America. Because Americans thought D&D was the work of Satan. Oh, so. God. <laughs> if there's a game literally called Devil World, though. Either way, it's still a piece of Nintendo and Miyamoto's history, and the main antagonist, the devil himself, is also featured in Super Smash Bros. as an assist trophy. He's the one that makes your screen... I hate that one. Yeah, he's a worse assist trophy, but he's 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 blue and he's got red spandex. I don't know. His first project for Famicom that would eventually get released worldwide, however, was Excite Bike. Now this is actually pretty. Excite Bike is hype. That's still a good game. Excite Bike was developed in collaboration with Toshihiko Nakago, someone who would become a frequent collaborator on tons of future projects. A future president of Nintendo, Satoru Iwata, even said that he and the pair were a golden triangle within Nintendo. Following the release of both Devil World and Excite Bike, Miyamoto and the team at Nintendo R&D 4 began work on two more games developed at the same time. Now, these two games would become the basis for everything moving forward. These two games would change everything for everyone. And those two games are Super Mario Brothers and The Legend of Zelda. And that is where we'll pick up 
next time. A bit of a cliffhanger, I know, but I had to shorten things a little bit for the sake of production and my own sanity and whatnot. If you like the shorter format, let me know, but if you still want me to bust my ass editing, let me know. But for now, that's it for Random Access Memories. I didn't want to leave you on a tease like that, but I just, it was the most natural place to end. But I'm excited for next time to talk about the bulk of Miyamoto's career. This was definitely like an origin story. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's fun. It, I like. I didn't even know half that stuff. Like, I just knew. Yeah, that's like, why I'm like his like boyhood was like how he got his idea for the games, kind of, and that was really about it. Mm-hmm. And some of those seeds I planted this episode, and they won't really be touched on until next episode, like with the the, the cave thing. Um, but yeah, um, this was intended to just be one part, but then I'm like, ah, crap. There's way too much here to just do in one part, so I got to split it up a little bit. Because like reading about. Um, like his hometown was super interesting reading about president yamauchi that was super fascinating to me so i'm like i gotta put these details in and soon enough it just became more and more bloated so i'm like i gotta just cut it off and save the rest for next time but yeah hopefully i I didn't annoy anyone with that (laughs) that cliffhanger we'll get there don't you worry yeah yeah next week next week um but for now thank you for listening and we shall see you next time Thank you for listening to Random Access Memories, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you want more, check out our previous episodes and or subscribe to the show on the podcast platform of your choice. This podcast was produced by Ron's Pies on YouTube, so please check the channel out, subscribe, and share the show. You can follow me on Twitter at WadeLikesPie and Keegan at Key underscore Gan underscore Gin. See you next time.